0: Well, have you ever in your life had a relationship that was full of both love and frustration? That might be the only relationship some of you guys have, right? Just full of love and frustration. Well, uh, Paul is dealing with the church, and his relationship with them is just full of love and frustration at every turn, it seems. That as Paul interacts with these believers and rebukes them through letters, has visits with them, and hears back about what they're thinking and doing, it's just frustrating. But make no mistake about it, the Apostle Paul loved this church. Paul had a heart for these believers. He considered them brothers and sisters in the faith. He didn't doubt their salvation, but boy, was he frustrated with them. And so this morning, we are just going to continue hearing about these frustrations that Paul had, and we're going to hear more and more and more through the book of Second Corinthians. And that's one of the reasons why I love the book. It is just so real. I mean, this is the nature of our relationships here on earth, and yes, even our relationships in the church. But let's look together where we left off last week at verse 15, 2 Corinthians 1, and I'll read verses 15 through 17. Paul writes, in this confidence, I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing, that is to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or what purpose or what I purpose do I purpose according to the flesh so that with me There will be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time. Interesting question he poses there in verse 17. Well, Paul had planned to come to the Corinthians. We talked about this last week at the end of the message. Paul had planned, and then he planned again, and then he planned again, and audibles were just being made. Again, that is the nature of Christian missionary service. You make plans, and by God's grace, you keep them, By God's grace, they change. That's just how it works. And Paul had told them at the end of his last letter, at the end of 1 Corinthians, he said that his desire was to go to them and to spend a long while with them. He said, I don't want to just see you in passing, but I want to spend time with you. And we hear in our passage here that he wanted to bless them. Well, we saw that there was a discrepancy. Again, last week we examined this where he said initially that he wanted to go through Macedonia and go to them. Macedonia is up north of where they were. He wanted to come in from the north and then spend a long time with them and be sent by them back north. Well, that changed, and later on down the road he thought, you know, actually, I'm going to go to them first and then go up to Macedonia and then come back to them. Well, that plan had to change too. Paul wasn't able to do either one of those things. And in the midst of all the changing plans... Paul had to do what he didn't want to do. He actually did have a passing visit with them. He had a short visit with them, and it was not full of gladness. Look here again in 2 Corinthians, but look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. He had come to them. He made a quick dart over to Corinth, as quick as it can be, probably by ship, from Ephesus, that's there in modern-day Turkey. He went across the sea and went to Greece, and he had to see them because of all the issues that were coming up. And this was a sorrowful visit, Paul says. He visited them in sorrow, and he wasn't going to do that again. He tells them here in chapter 2, verse 1, I determined for my own sake, I like that, for for my own sake, I'm just not going to put myself through that again. Well, he was changing his plans quite a bit, and despite what his critics said, this is the main point of our passage today, despite what his critics said, his schedule was not constructed carelessly. His schedule was not constructed without purpose. Look again at verse 17, and I'm realizing that I didn't run this by anybody this week. I just assumed that the word is vacillating. I am pronouncing that right, right, Melissa? Okay. Okay, I thought, boy, do I sound dumb? Uh, I don't know. That happens a lot. Well, let's uh, look at verse 17 again. Paul asks them this hypothetical question, or rhetorical question rather. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or what I purpose? Do I purpose according to the flesh? He asks. Paul is asking them these rhetorical questions to hammer home the point that he is not throwing together his schedule pridefully last minute, carelessly. He wasn't doing so in a way that his critics said he was. This word vacillating is an interesting word. Let me give you the, uh, the Greek definition. It means to be willy-nilly. Uh, Paul asked, was I just being willy-nilly with you whenever I said I would do this and then I didn't? The word denotes irresponsibility. When someone is vacillating, that means that person is teetering irresponsibly. But Paul says, on the contrary, I was God-directed. Verse 17 here, Paul is pointing out he did not say yes when he truly meant no. He didn't say no when he actually meant yes. He meant what he said, and he was being led by God and making his plans. He was no deceiver. Perhaps some of these fake apostles that were in Corinth who came in after Paul left Perhaps some of them were saying that Paul, he's just full of deception, isn't he? You can't rely on him for anything. He's always just looking out for number one, and he doesn't care about God's church. Well, there's much on the line in their rush to judgment. Those who were influencing the church to turn against Paul, well, Paul here, when he says, look, God was leading me, God was the one directing my plans, Paul reminds them here in a way that their charge was actually against God. If you have a problem with me and my plan's changing, well, you actually have a problem with God because Paul was being led by him. The Lord is certainly not fickle, is He? Could we lay that charge against God that He says yes when He really means no or He says no when He really means yes? No, that's not the case. God is true through and through. And God will, at times, in our lives, redirect us. So we might be going one direction in life thinking, this is what God has for me, this is where God is leading me. And then, sometime later, we're not there at all. How did that happen? We've perhaps drifted all the way over here. But as Christians, if we're seeking the will of God, if we're being led by the Spirit of God, if we're pursuing wisdom in all things, we can actually rest that this is God's leading. We can rest that just as God was leading us initially to make some plans, well, he, he closed some windows, he shut some doors, and now we've had to redirect. And we're seeking to just continue, follow God in all that we're doing. Well, how do you find that, that balance in life? God is directing us one way, and then he changes, and it just seems so confusing, doesn't it? Well, we get a hint in the New Testament From the book of James, this is perhaps the most famous passage in the Bible about planning. In James chapter 4, a great reminder for us all, all the time, James chapter 4, starting in verse 13, he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Verse 14 Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. If you could just embrace that sentence. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. That's a pretty healthy perspective on the sovereignty of God, isn't it? To recognize that In our plans, we have to fall back on whatever God wills. This is my plan for now, but God may change that. And that's some great tension that we have in the Christian life. We must plan, but we must never presume upon tomorrow. And that's a delicate balance because you have to do both, you have to plan. To be a good steward of what God has given you, you've got to make some sort of a plan. You've got to see the trajectory where this is going. And if it's going a bad direction, you're responsible to adjust things. That's just part of managing life. But at the same time, you should never presume upon tomorrow. Plan, but don't presume. Because God can change things in an instant, can He? And I'd say that in light of this as Christians, we must be very careful about obligating ourselves. It can be very simple to say yes and agree to things and to sign up for things and to say, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, I'll be there. Yeah, I'll do this. Yeah, I'll do that. We must be careful because we don't know what God has for us tomorrow. Paul gave this church a general desire. He wanted to be with them, and he even had a route in mind. But I don't think he gave them a date or a time. We don't have that in the letter. He didn't say Hey, July 15th, I'll be there at breakfast. He didn't say that. He expressed a general desire. And so we too should take note from that because we don't know what God has for us tomorrow. And there's a good reason that a lot of us will say something like, Lord willing, right? How often do we say that even in just general plans, like, see you Sunday, Lord willing? (laughs) I think that's a good idea. As long as we're not saying it in a hollow sense, but as long as we mean it. Because you don't know if you'll be sick next Sunday. You don't know if you'll be breathing next Sunday, right? We just don't know. The Lord will change our plans for His glory and for our good, won't He? He's the God who works all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And the way that we go about making plans in life should reflect that. Well, thinking again about Paul and the Corinthians, he left that sorrowful visit quickly, it seems. It it does seem like it was a short visit. And he said that he wasn't just sparing himself, but he was sparing them. Drop down to verse 23 with me. Paul talks about this visit and says, I call God as my witness to my soul, that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith, you are standing firm. Well, Paul's relationship with this church has had so many ups and downs. And right now, as we read it in the letter, he had some reason to hope, but he also had some reason to be a little trepidatious about this church. The relationship was just rocky, turbulent. And he tells them that he didn't come to them again, in order to spare them. You see that in verse 23, he was sparing them. What was he sparing them from? Well, I think at just a minimum, we can say he wanted to spare them from unpleasant conflict because there were people in that church who had to be addressed. When Paul was there, these critics of his who said they were apostles and they were not, Paul was going to have to address them. And he didn't want to go in there as a tyrant. You notice that in verse 24? He says, we're not lording things over you, we're workers for your joy, we're your servants. His desire was for just a a loving relationship. But he knew that there was unpleasant conflict ahead. It was a very touchy situation. And to get more detail about this, go forward to chapter 12 with me, same book, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 19. Look at these things that Paul says about this church, about what he expects 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 19, Paul says, All this time you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. So he's reminding them here that throughout this letter, his primary concern isn't about defending himself. His primary concern is about holiness in the Corinthian church. Verse 20, for I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish, and may be found by you not to be what you wish. That perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. If you were Paul, would you want to make a beeline over there to address those issues? Verse 21. Paul says, I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. Let's keep reading into chapter 13. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Verse 2, I have previously said... When present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone, since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. So Paul knew if he was going back, there would be no sparing. There would be sparring, but there would be no sparing. He knew that there were disturbed people who were going to cause disturbances. And so Paul says all the way back in chapter 1 where we are, that he hasn't gone back because he is currently sparing them. You know what this is like if you've parented. You have these children and you know that something has gone wrong. One of those children has done something wrong. You know that this child is going to have to be confronted. You know there's an explosion coming, and it has to be confronted. Well, can we wait five more minutes? (laughs) Can we spare them five more minutes? Or perhaps those of you who have managed other people in the workplace, there are difficult conversations you have to have. And you say sometimes on a Friday, it can wait till Monday (laughs) to spare them the weekend and even to spare yourself Well, this apostle, for now, was sparing them. I love this quote I came across from Augustine this week on this very issue. Augustine says, As severity is ready to punish the faults which it may discover, so charity is reluctant to discover the faults which it must punish. There was a love there that Paul had for this church that even though he knew things would have to be confronted in time for the moment, And love, he was sparing them. He, of course, could have lorded it over them. He says in verse 24, that's not what they wanted to do. Paul, of course, is an apostle. He was working miraculous signs and wonders. Perhaps God would have allowed him to go over to Corinth and to face his accusers and to say, the Lord, shut your mouth. And maybe the Lord would do such a thing. They'd no longer be able to talk and they'd have to sit. And Paul could then say exactly what he wanted to say. But that's not what Paul wanted to do. You see, again, verse 24, Paul says, we are workers with you. They're not lording things over them. They're workers with them for their joy. For in your faith, it's amazing he can even say this. For in your faith, you are standing firm. He wanted that loving relationship with these believing Corinthians, his brothers and sisters in the faith. And I've been a part of church meetings Uh, private meetings, confrontational situations where there have been unrepentant people and the pastor in the room is weeping. And the unrepentant person is there in his or her pride, not shedding a tear. And the pastor, perhaps not doubting that person's salvation at all, is just absolutely broken because this person isn't reciprocating the love. This person is judging him. And Paul is in that kind of situation with the Corinthians. He's he's calling his brothers and sisters in the faith to be committed to him as he is committed to them. That they'd be devoted to the Lord, that they would devote themselves to holiness. And his heart is absolutely broken over these people whom he loves so dearly. Paul says that he and his company... At least Timothy and Silvanus, who's also Silas, they were committed to the Corinthians in sincerity and truth, and they simply desired reciprocation. Paul is telling them, We're so committed to your success. We're committed to your growth. We want your maturity. Can you desire the same thing back for us? (laughs) That's all Paul wanted. And we see throughout this passage in these verses that I jumped over for the time being, that the basis of our commitment to one another in these church relationships, the center of our integrity in this Christian life is God's Word and God's work. Let's look again at verses 18 to 22. Paul says, As God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Sylvanus and Timothy, it was not yes and no, but is yes in Him. For as many as are the promises of God, in Him they are yes. Therefore also through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now He who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us as God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Well, we see in that first verse I read, verse 18, that our faithfulness to each other must reflect God's faithfulness. As God is faithful, Paul says, and then he goes on to describe his relationship with the church. As God is faithful, we are to be faithful to one another. We must be led by the Spirit in these relationships and in all of life. When we're led by the Spirit, you know what will happen? We'll be faithfully devoted. We'll be devoted to God. We'll be devoted to one another. The Spirit is the one who gifts us, who knits us together in the body. He baptizes us and places us in the body of Christ. And when we follow Him, we're pressing into that unity. The Spirit will never drag us away from the unity of Christ. The Spirit will only lead us into the unity that we have in Jesus. And so Paul here gives three reasons, including the Holy Spirit, but he gives three reasons why he was unaffected by these charges of vacillation in his ministry, charges of being irresponsible in his ministry. And he starts with the person of Jesus Christ. You see that in verse 19? He puts their eyes on the Son of God, Christ Jesus, the one whom he preached when he was in Corinth. Perhaps you can remember all the way back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, I desired nothing among you, but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. All Paul wanted to know was Christ and Him crucified, His salvation. That was central. The person and work of Jesus was central to Paul. And what he's saying to them here is what had been preached to them about Jesus was true. They didn't come to them preaching something about Jesus and then the next day kind of changing a little bit and going back and forth and their yes was no and their no was yes, none of that. They were pointing to Jesus, and when you are focused on Jesus, the one who is presented to us through the revelation given to us in the Bible, you'll be so steady. You'll be on the rock. Remember Jesus' teaching? No shifting sand. You'll be on the rock. And Paul here is appealing to Jesus, the Son of God, as his Lord, as his God, as his judge. He's not affected by these judgments that these false apostles have in Corinth, because he knows the Jesus he preached. He knows the Jesus that is his Lord. He wasn't bothered. Not only did he have the comfort from the relationship with Jesus, but he had confidence in the substance of his message, and the substance of his message was Jesus. Jesus was and is perfectly devoted. You agree with that? Jesus was and is and always will be perfectly devoted. Remember what he was constantly saying during his earthly ministry? He came not to do his own will, but the will of the Father. All that the Father has for me, that's what he's, that's what he's going to do. He was constantly committing himself, devoting himself to the will of the Father. Uh, Peter tells us that's how we go through suffering in this life. We go through suffering by remembering what Jesus did. Constantly giving himself over to the care of the Father. And so, in this life, as we focus on Jesus, the Son of God, that will keep us from teetering indecision in life. When we focus on Jesus, that will keep us from vacillating. That will keep us from double speak. That will keep us from double mindedness. But when we focus on Christ with that sort of simplicity, that all we want is Jesus, to know Him and to know Him crucified, the fellowship of His sufferings and the power of the resurrection. God's going to focus your mind in life if you just keep looking to the Son of God, to Jesus Christ. Well, another reason that Paul points out here that he's unaffected by their judgments is the promises of God. See that in verse 20? Paul references the promises of God, the promises found in His Word Latching onto these also keeps us steady in life. When we read about the promises that God has already fulfilled and the ones that He's going to fulfill, we are throwing ourselves onto the faithful God. And we start by recognizing that He is faithful. God is the ultimate promise keeper, isn't He? Perhaps you remember there was a big Christian men's organization called Promise Keepers. Well, God is the ultimate promise keeper. He's never broken one promise, and He never will. He's absolutely faithful through and through. If He said it, it will happen. No man, no creature could ever match the faithfulness of God in keeping promises. Robert Gramacchi, in his commentary, said this, "'To keep a promise every time, one must know all of the present and future circumstances and must have the power to control all contingencies.'" No man can do this, but God can. Isn't that Right? He makes a promise, he keeps a promise. And so Paul had confidence in the promises of God. He couldn't be shaken by man's false judgments because he was latched onto the faithful God who keeps all of his promises. Yesterday, I was just reading some Andrew Murray, lived a long time ago, and one of the things he said in what I read yesterday was, with God, a promise is as good as its fulfillment. What a simple way to put that. With God, the promise itself is as good as the fulfillment because if He's promised it, it will be fulfilled. And the Son, Jesus Christ, He's the one through whom God's faithfulness and the fulfillment of all these promises is realized. Look at verse 20 with me again. For as many as are the promises of God, in Him they are yes. In Christ, in the Son of God, All of the promises of God are yes. Therefore, through Jesus, through the Son of God, we find our amen to the glory of God through us. What an amazing verse. The Messiah, he's the ultimate demonstration of God's faithfulness, isn't he? Can you think of a greater picture of God's faithfulness than God the Son coming here to save us, as was promised? And just as Jesus has come, Jesus will come. We're living between the two advents of Christ and we know that God has promised He's coming again to reveal the hearts of men, to judge the living and the dead. There will be a resurrection of the believer. There will be a great white throne. There will be a kingdom. There will be a new heaven and new earth. And all of these promises, they're as good as fulfilled because who made them? God did. And we, the church... We find our amen in this Jesus, through whom all of the promises will be realized. And we find our, prom, our, our amen in Him as opposed to the law. Maybe you can remember all the way back in Deuteronomy 27, at the very end of Moses receiving the law, giving the law to Israel, do you remember what God told him to do? To have all these people go stand on Mount Ebal, and they're to read, cursed is the man who fill in the blank, just over and over again. Cursed is the man who does this. Cursed is the man who does that. And at the very end, cursed is the one who does not keep all of the words of this law. And the people each time were to reply, amen. Aren't you glad you're not standing on Mount Ebal, but you're standing on the solid rock, Jesus Christ? And you have your amen through him that you are now free, you're forgiven, you're released by God's grace to enjoy God forever. And Jesus even calls himself the amen. In Revelation 3, as he's speaking to one of the churches, those first seven churches, Jesus says, if you had a red letter Bible, this would be in red letters, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this. Jesus is the amen. Isn't that amazing? He calls himself such. God's promises are realized to all people in Christ, and we, the church, have our amen in Jesus. Well, a third reason why Paul was unaffected by the judgments of the false apostles and now the rest of the church is because of the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 21 and 22 with me again. Paul says, "He who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also seated us and gave us the or sealed us rather and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge, the pledge of the Spirit." The Spirit who guided and directed Paul, who empowered Paul's ministry, and certainly gave Paul confidence. Paul, after all, is the one who wrote in Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit is the one who testifies with our spirits that we are children of God. He's the one who comes into our hearts that we may cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit is the one who performs a great work in us as Christians. By the Spirit, God anoints all Christians. You see that word anoint here in our passage we just looked at, verse 21? God anoints us. And that anointing comes by the Spirit. As Christians, we're regenerated, we're born again by the Spirit of God. We're sealed by the Spirit of God. This is His work. And it's important to note that in Paul's particular context, he had a special anointing, didn't he? Because Paul wasn't just like us. He had a special office in the church that came with a particular anointing from the Holy Spirit. It says in this same book, chapter 12, verse 12, 2 Corinthians twelve twelve, Paul writes to them saying, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. As an apostle, he had the ability to perform signs and wonders. This too came by the Holy Spirit. He had a special gifting because of the Spirit's work in his life. And what a validation, Of his ministry. How can you go out as an apostle working signs and wonders like the apostles did and then be thrown off because some people in a church said, you make your plans too hastily and we're judging you because of it? That didn't affect Paul. He knew he had the Holy Spirit living in him and he knew there was a validation of his ministry by God's work through him. And even though we're not apostles, we too have a validation from the Spirit. Our future is sure as Christians, and we have assurance imparted to our hearts by the same Holy Spirit who empowered the apostles. We have assurance and peace that guards our hearts and minds in Christ by the same Holy Spirit who arrived at Pentecost. We have validation of our salvation and our status as children of God through the Holy Spirit. Notice in verse 22 where the Spirit is. He's in our hearts. Now, this is just a phrase that denotes the most intimate type of relationship that we could have with God, that He dwells within. That God the Spirit comes not just alongside, not just over, not just ahead of. Those are all true and good. But He's within. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives as the one who empowers us from the inside. And as God's people, we must take hold of this relationship. He's not there for no reason. He guides. He empowers. He brings fruit. He's able to be grieved. That means He's, like, directing you in a way, isn't He? As many are the children of God... You have the Spirit of God. Follow the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit, and He will lead you into truth and into Christian unity. And that's what this life is for. This life is for being led by the Spirit because there's coming an afterlife for you, Christian, where your faith will be sight, won't it? That's going to be a changed ballgame. That will be a very different type of relationship that you have with God than it is now. It's same God, same you. But you're going to see, and you'll be like Him, 1 John 3 says, which is startling and remarkable and amazing, wonderful. But we're not there yet, and so in this life, God has given us His Spirit as a down payment of what is to come, a pledge of what is to come, a guarantee of what is to come. There's a life coming, and an existence coming that will be different than this. But for now, we're led by the Spirit. And He is our pledge. You see that too in our passage. The Spirit is our pledge. And really, that's what that word means is down payment. I still remember as a uh, maybe first semester Greek student, our Greek professor loved to point us to this passage as we were getting to know some texts or textbooks. One of the textbooks was like a... uh, basically a dictionary, a vocabulary book that only shows the usages of biblical words outside of the biblical text. And so as a bunch of archaeology has been performed over there where a lot of these cities were, they'll find things like grocery receipts and notes and letters that people sent to one another. And it helps to, to teach us how those words were used at that time. In different contexts and to give a fuller context. Well, I remember, I think I was the one who looked this up. He had us look up that word for pledge that we see there in 2 Corinthians 1, and so I found it in the book, and uh, sometimes it just has it in Greek, and you know the phrase, it's all Greek to me. You look at that and you say, okay, that doesn't help me, but this one actually, uh, it was translated in English too, and it was from a, an invoice, so to speak, that was found in the first century where it said that the person had given the pledge to the rat catcher. So someone had, as a profession, rat catching, exterminator, pest control, you know, whatever you want to call, and that person had come by and it was going to cost some money for all the services he had to perform. Well, the customer had offered the pledge. You had to pay such and such up front and pay the rest later. Well, that's the idea here is that God has given us the Holy Spirit in our hearts as a pledge, as a down payment, as a deposit, as a guarantee that what is to come will come. What God has for us will come because He's the perfect promise keeper. And perhaps because we're not the perfect promise believers, God's given us more and more reasons to believe Him, hasn't He? He's given us more and more reason to be confident, and Paul was confident. Well, I want to close with a few considerations from this passage. First, did you notice the Trinity in this? Did you notice Father, Son, and Spirit? Here, Paul talks about in verse 20, the promises of God, and it seems as though he has in view God the Father because it is in God the Son that they are yes. God the Father keeps His promises through God the Son. There, of course, is God the Son, who is not yes and no, but is yes, the man, Christ Jesus. And we also finished off with verses 21 and 22, speaking of the Spirit. So, the closer you are to the triune God, the closer you are to Him, the more confidence you will have in judgment. The more you look to Jesus, the more you consider the promises of the Father, the more you're led by the Spirit, you will have confidence as you are judged by others, as people are critics of your own ministry in your life. You got any of those? If anybody needs one, just let me know. That might be fun for me. I could be your critic. (laughs) You'll have critics and judges. You'll have those who examine you and come to wrong conclusions. Do you have confidence? How can you have confidence? By drawing nearer to the triune God, resting in the promises of your Father, by focusing on the one through whom the promises will be realized, Jesus Christ, being led by the Spirit of God. When I was a new believer there in Missouri, I was uh, walking out of uh, the church's gym. It was on the church property there, and I was walking out of the gym one day, and the pastor was coming in, uh, so I had only been a believer maybe two years at that point, and he meets me in the breezeway, and he says, Jeremy, I am disappointed in you. I had no reason why he, uh, t- to think he would ever say that. I have no idea why he said that. And so, you know, as a, whatever I was, 17, 18-year-old, Oh, why? You know, what happened? Tell me. What can I do? What can I, what can I change? And he said that I need to stop fearing man. <laughs> he had no reason to say he was disappointed in me. He wanted to see how I'd react. He was being my critic. He was being my judge. He was testing me to see how I'd respond, to see if I was walking in confidence, if I was certain and sure of how God was leading me through life. Isn't that an interesting confrontation? Maybe I'll start doing that to some of you around here. (laughs) So our first point of application here today needs to be the closer we are to God, the more confidence we'll have as we walk through this life. You want to avoid vacillating? Walk with God. Well, let's also remember that this all has to do with Paul defending his integrity. Paul is telling them that he keeps his word that he's not somebody who makes plans by the flesh. So, against those who were quick to judge, he's defending himself. And how stupid it is for them to judge, especially that church who Paul was with for 18 months. Perhaps you had forgotten he was with them for such a long time. You can read in the book of Acts, Paul was at Corinth for well over a year. That's plenty of time for people to get to know each other when they're spending all that time together as they did. And now... Because other people said so, they turn around and judge Paul. Well, David Garland articulates this circumstance by saying this, the implication is that if they affirm that the message about Christ is trustworthy, then they should be able to affirm that the messengers are trustworthy too. How can they say yes to God while saying no to God's apostle? And that's what they were doing. The Corinthians were saying yes to God. Yes, we believe Jesus, but no, that Paul, we're against him now. How could they say that Paul was untrustworthy when it was through Paul they heard of the trustworthy God? See how nonsensical that is? And so often when we are the ones who are the critics, when we rush to judgment, we kind of make those same nonsensical connections because we're led by a feeling, we're led by someone else's persuasive gossip, whatever it may be, but we should not be quick to judge. There's a lesson in that for us. Notice here too, especially in verses 21 and 22, Paul used the word us. In 21 he says, He who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God. So again, Paul wasn't questioning their salvation. Paul wasn't calling into question their salvation authenticity of faith, which is pretty remarkable because I think I probably would. But Paul here was being led by the Spirit as he writes this. And he says that the Corinthian church that was now accusing him, they're actually established with him in Christ. And so for them to turn around and accuse Paul is, they're, as I think MacArthur put it in his commentary, they're cutting off the branch they're sitting on, aren't they? Because whether they like it or not in that moment they're knitted together. And so Paul's heart wasn't to blast them away, his heart was to reconcile. Homer Kent, in his commentary, writes, Paul had thus involved the triune God in pointing his readers to the grandeur of salvation. One should reflect soberly on what God has done for believers before he embarks on a course that would tear apart the unity that God is forming. That is so, so critical. So, because of our unity, when we turn against one another, as the Corinthians were doing to Paul and Timothy and Silas, we're harming ourselves, aren't we? When we seek to tear down God's church, we're tearing down ourselves. Paul warned these Corinthians back in 1 Corinthians 3 that if someone seeks to tear down the house of God, God will tear him down. There will be discipline, there will be judgment, there will be punishment. And so, again, to reiterate, the big idea here from Paul's perspective is he was committed to the Corinthians in sincerity and truth, and he just wanted a reciprocating relationship in that way. So let us walk by the Spirit and the confidence that God gives. Let us devote ourselves one to another, to be committed to one another. And let us also be slow to judge. Let's learn that from the Corinthians to be slow, to point the finger, and do all that we can in love to hope all things, believe all things, and foster unity among God's people. Let's do that, and let's pray. God, again, we're thankful because of what you have done. We're saved because of your work. We are justified because of what was done in our place. And so, God, this life that we live, it's for you. We want to be led by your Spirit. We want to be guided and directed by you, the personal God, the infinite God. Please help us to walk through this life each day bearing in mind what you have called us to do, that we would bring to bear on all our relationships your truth, and that we would, above all these things, put on love which is the bond of perfect unity in Christ. God, we thank you so much because of what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen.